We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. This week our episode looks at women in Westminster, a conversation about women in power with Mary Beard, Rachel Reeves and Sandeep Verma. Hannah Kay was the producer of this event. Hannah, tell us about the cast. Who have we got on stage tonight? Thanks, Farah. We had Rachel Reeves, a Labour MP, who's written a book called Women of Westminster, MPs Who Changed Politics. We had Mary Beard, Professor of Classics and a very popular broadcaster, and Sandy Verma, who's a Conservative member of the House of Lords. And Helen Lewis from The Atlantic chaired the event. And of course, Hannah, this event was particularly timely because this week Boris Johnson has been criticised for potentially undermining the safety of female MPs when members of the House asked him to tone down his language and he responded by saying humbug. That's right. And numerous commentators have criticised him for dismissing women's concerns about their safety in Parliament and beyond. So it's a very timely conversation. It reflects on the events in Parliament this week. And keep an ear out to hear the comments by Mary Beard talking about parliamentarians needing their bottoms smacked. But it also reflects on the wider history of women in Parliament and Rachel's book, which looks at the history of women in Westminster. We hope you enjoy this episode. And if you do, please do take a moment to rate and review Intelligence Squared on Apple Podcasts. Well, good evening. It feels like we're at a crossroads, really. We've had two female prime ministers. We now have a third of the House of Commons are of women MPs. But at the same time, abuse, particularly on social media, is an overwhelming concern of female MPs. And we are still nowhere near equality. So I'm delighted to be joined by this panel. Mary, you already know from her Boris Johnson baiting triumph. Uh, she's also the author of Women in Power, a manifesto. Uh, I'm also joined by Labour MP Rachel Reeves, author of Women of Westminster, The MPs Who Changed Politics, and the Conservative peer Sandy Varma, Baroness Verma, in fact, although we won't stand on ceremony tonight. Uh, I want to start with you, Rachel, because you were there yesterday, presumably, for the extraordinary scenes in the House of Commons. Um, And it seemed to me like it was women MPs who were really taking the lead of saying our political language has got far too heated and there are consequences to this. Is that because of the level of abuse that they receive, or was there some other motivating, or was it coincidence? Why, why was it so many women making that case? I, th- I think maybe for a number of reasons. 
I think at the last general election, women standing for Parliament got something like five times the level of abuse on social media compared with men. When Joe Cox wrote an article with Labour MP Neil Coyle, being critical of some of the, the, the of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, Joe got something like four times as much um, abuse, even though the article was in both of their names. And so I think there is a disproportionate abuse dished out at women in politics. But the women who spoke last night, particularly Paula Sheriff, who was a neighbouring MP of um, Joe, you know, she's had death threats. She is somebody who I think is in genuine fear a lot of the time. And for the Prime Minister to then reply, I've never heard such humbug, I mean, it really was disgraceful, and I couldn't stay in the chamber for much longer after uh, that because I really just... I couldn't listen any more to it. But then, of course, Tracy Brabin uh, stood up, and Tracy also knew Joe, and she represents the seat of Batley and Spen, where Joe was murdered um, just three and a bit years ago. And she also urged Boris Johnson to tone down the language. So did I, so did Angela Eagle, so did other uh, MPs in Parliament. And I think it's part because the uh, abuse experienced by women, and you say it's mostly on, on social media, but, you know... It's not, um, it's not limited, is it, to social media? Obviously, there's a man in prison for the murder of my friend and colleague, Joe Cox. There's also a man in prison for plotting to kill the Labour MP, Rosie Cooper. There are people in prison for death threats against Jess Phillips, mm. Heidi Allen, Anna Subri, Luciana Berger. You know, the list just goes on and on. So what might start on social media quickly spills over into the real world. For my book, I interviewed um, Theresa May when she was still Prime Minister, and she said that you used to have a bloke at the end of the bar who maybe like muttered into his pint and nobody listened. Uh, but now he puts forth his views on social media and he builds up a following and he starts to think that the views that he's got are, are normal and, and, and they're not. But then when you hear the Prime Minister use language in the House of Commons like he did yesterday about the surrender bill, um, about betrayal, other MPs using um, the word traitors, then it's just gone too far. And it is incredibly dangerous because we're supposed to provide some sort of leadership in the House of Commons and some sort of example. I mean, maybe I'm being perhaps too naive and altruistic, but I believe we should give some form of example and leadership. And the leadership that we're providing at the moment is that this is acceptable, and frankly, it's not. Sandy, he's your party leader, Boris Johnson, has come in for a lot of criticism in the last 24 hours. Um, When you were watching that, what did you think? Well, I, first of all, need to agree with Rachel. I found it really, really distasteful, and I was getting angry as, as I watched the proceedings... And in fact, I just felt that what was happening was going to start rolling out into the streets. And I think that's the worry people like me have, is that what starts off as debate, supposedly, starts to be enacted much more physically out into the streets because we have now given license for that behaviour. And I think we've got to be very, very careful. And during the leadership Um, contest of my party leadership, I wrote to the the candidates, actually to Boris, and I said tone matters. Mm -hmm. And it really does matter because, to be quite frank, we all think we're very politically sophisticated and we can (coughs) read between the messaging. 
but actually most of us can't. And what we're now taking as normalized, because it's becoming normalized behavior. So the rudeness is normalized. Attacking members of parliament on social media is normalized. So do you feel that you were listened to? Because I know that Saeed Abbasi has made criticisms, particularly about Islamophobia and, and, and also about sexism in the Tory party, and has not received a particularly warm response. But I think, I think this is happening across... You see, I, I, I can see it in my own party, mm. but I actually think politics has got so low down there now, across all political parties... And we're, we're sort of constantly having to play to the lowest denominator. Rather than raise the bar, we're actually willing to push the bar down. Mary, I want to bring you in because, I mean, this isn't unprecedented levels of, of, of kind of political violent, violent language, right? But where, I mean, from a kind of lot big zoomed out perspective, how do you feel the level of the temperature of the conversation is at the moment? Well, I feel very much like... Rachel and Sandy and I watched last night with, you know, rage. I was furious and, you know, wanted to hit the telly. Um, I, but that's sort what, of the problem, isn't it? But, because rage yeah, engenders but, more rage. But um, once I turned it off uh, and seen somehow the, the unbatterability of a man who wants to speak like that, somehow as if nothing was impacted. I, I, I started to think about the different ranges of female rhetoric that we have, which I certainly would not have been able to um, uh, draw on if I had been in the House of Commons last night. And I thought of my headmistress back at my girls' school, and I thought we needed, and this is no criticism to any of the women there with whom I'm absolutely at one, I thought a little bit of sort of withering disdain might not have come amiss in the way that only your school headmistress could ever give you. And it, I began to think back, do you remember when Diane At, Diana Athill interviewed, was it Mark Thompson? It was some director general of the BBC. There she was, old lady, being utterly calm, utterly quiet, and completely withering and destroyed him. And I thought, I could not do that. But I want... An, I, I want someone over 80 <laughs> to tell that man and the others, because it was not only him, that that is not, I'm terribly sorry, how we do things. Mm. And I, I wondered if we could... No, I, I did wonder about the ranges of rhetoric, which maybe women actually could command um, more widely than men. Men don't have a kind of... Men are very bad at being headmistresses, really. And they don't quite have that. I wondered if we could sort of command something that would, that would deflate this. You think embrace the scolding? Yeah, uh, yes. You know, I mean, <laughs> we all know what it was like to be ticked off with someone who never raised their voice. Well, I think a bit of that wouldn't come amiss. And, it, and I think maybe women could reclaim that, that sense of... I'm terribly sorry, but this behaviour will not do. Now, uh, I, you've let you yourself know, down. Dream on, school down. dream <laughs> on, everybody, dream on. You know, I, and you know, I, I felt crosser than almost every woman who spoke last night. I think. But we did get. I don't know what any of you think, but I did feel that there was an interesting moment of female power this week from um, Brenda Hale, Baroness Hale, the chair of the Supreme Court, yes, but, who is seventy-four years old. So she's not quite in not your quite bracket quite. of. 
She's got yeah, a couple of years to go. But that was a judgment which was delivered with enormous authority and yeah. restraint. And actually, one of the things I think comes out in this conversation consistently is it's very hard to see women as holders of expertise That's and authority. Right. Yeah. But that was a moment of yeah. seeing an older Absolutely. woman in complete Absolutely. control of the situation. In yeah. a case brought by Gina Miller. So yes. it's been a great week for women yes. in leadership yes. and a very bad week for men in leadership. Yes, it Donald has. Trump and Boris Johnson. Yes, it has. But do you think that women have access to the kind of register that Boris Johnson was using yesterday? Can women bluster in that way you know that do we need not to, something we do we want to do we need to? to but if that's the game that people are playing oh it's the game of the student debating chamber yeah. uh, and you know i think student debating is you know no doubt a very good thing if that's what you want to do but it isn't you know it's not for the house of commons um and i, I think it's shown up as juvenile so it actually feels juvenile but the question is and i think it's the same, I feel, with Trump. It's, it, I suppose this is what I was saying before, really. It's a question of what rhetorical register punctures that? Because it's, a, you know, that sort of bluster, that blokish bluster is very, very hard to pierce. Mm. And um, my question, I mean, I think probably women in the end might manage it better than blokes, uh, but I, I'm still not certain how. But I do feel it's something to do with the with withering austerity in the rhetorical sense, not the economic sense. Sandy, I want to ask you about um, Greta Thunberg, because I thought that was another different type of, of, of female power. She was very emotional as she spoke to the UN this week. She was tearing up as she said, you know, you've stolen my childhood through lack of action over climate change. And I felt that was a very risky thing for a, a woman, particularly a young woman, to do, to show emotion. Because one of the ways traditionally women have been undermined is by saying, you're hysterical, you're emotional, why should we listen to you? You're not rational. How did it strike you, that speech? So I think, I think Greta doing it as a young person was the right thing. Mm. Because I think young people embrace emotions very differently. And they... they they strike a very different chord in the wider political debate. I would have urged my colleagues and my friends in the Commons yesterday not to become a, a response to Boris in the way Boris was, but actually be much more like Justice Hale, yes. <laughs> much yeah. more in control of the emotions. And I think it's that balance of trying to find that balance of when it's right because the environmental issue is a, such a huge emotional issue for that generation, for the young generation sitting here today, as well as us. But to counter a debate that has got no intelligence underneath it at this moment in time, I'd hoped that my colleagues and my friends in the Commons hold a little bit more grit. Because the one thing that I've learned in the years that I've lived amongst politics is what bursts most people's bubbles is like when you face bullies head on. Mm -hmm. But Rachel, what was it like? Because, I mean, just as a woman to make, physically make yourself heard. I mean, you know, we, we all know the famous story of Margaret Thatcher lowering her voice and taking voice lessons. But, you know, one of the things about women speaking is it comes from a female body. You know, women tend to be smaller than men. They, they tend to talk in a, in a higher register. Although, weirdly, research shows that in the last 50 years, women's voices have dropped 
<laughs> significantly, which is a strange correlation with mentoring the workforce. But when you, kind of, when you get up to speak, does it feel like a disadvantage to be female in the House of Commons? I don't feel that, but Parliament was very much designed as a men's debating uh, chamber, uh, both physically and, and in other ways as well. So, um, you know, the fact that the opposition and government uh, benches are two sword lengths um, apart, um, the dispatch box, um, there's a lovely story um, that um, Ellen Wilkinson, who was the second woman to serve in a British um, cabinet, um, when she may, went to make her maiden speech from the dispatch box, as um, Clement Attlee Minister for Education, she found that she wasn't tall enough to see over the dispatch box because she was only four foot eleven in height, and so she had to stand next to it rather than in front of it. And so, Parliament is very much designed for men. Also, similarly, that the microphones hang down from the ceiling, uh, and for, if you're not that tall, it's quite difficult to catch the microphone. And when you rise to speak in, in the Commons, you know you, you need to catch the microphone to be uh, to be heard, especially if you're making an intervention. You know, will the honourable member give way? you have to catch the microphone for the other honourable members to, uh, to hear you in the chamber. So there is still this thing that Parliament is very much um, designed for men rather than for, for, for women who... Um, What's wrong with the bench the benches years too? Ago. The benches are so uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about your benches, but the benches definitely in the House of Lords are not designed for women. What is the loo situation like? <laughs> so... And, I mean, we've taken Lou's f- away from male colleagues. And it's <laughs> Sounds like an intriguing process by which you do that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, look, the, the serious point is actually Rachel's point. It is designed. Yeah. And until, until we start redesigning, and hopefully yeah. with a new building at some point, maybe not in our lifetimes, but whenever, mm. the designs will be different. But actually, you know, the benches, I, I come back to the benches because they are damn, damn uncomfortable. You have to sit there for a very long time. They are there for people with very long legs. And so you try and sit there for long periods of time trying to debate and be heard. It is not nice. But this is, I think, it's, it's, all these small things add up to a, a workplace that is not, you know, is not for you. Yeah. I'll bring Mary in first. But I think we also have to be careful. I mean, I totally agree, and you can do the same with, you know, most of the powerful institutions of this country, you know, have loos in which the women's loos are, you know, definitely inferior to the men's, you know, and you go, occasionally you go and peek into the men's loos um, in various <laughs> Cambridge colleges, and I confirmed that they were much better than the women's. But, I mean, I think in terms of speaking and getting your... You know, getting your point over. I mean, I think there's, I think there's a danger of thinking that there's sort of a template that women could mm. adopt that would help them. You know, and because it is very context specific, you don't know what it is that's going to pierce that kind of carapace of male rhetoric. I mean, you know, I was suggesting it was kind of headmistressly or perhaps Brenda Hale-like. Mm. Uh, command and austerity sometimes you know we're we're always told not to do this but I've done it a couple of times to great effect it's getting up bursting into tears and walking out you know you know sometimes Mm. that that says look guys you've really upset me think about it I just look over my glasses Um, yeah you see and 
strong I think that, you know, women who go on, you know, you go on leadership courses and you're given a whole load of instructions about how you should speak, how this will make you um, more effective. And it, you know, it's various variations on lower your voice, basically, but, you know, be more like a man. Well, that's exactly it, isn't it? It's the assumption that actually what women are deficient, they're doing it wrong, and the better way for them to do it is to do it exactly like a man. And then then you're play acting, you know, then you sit there and you think that, that you think what I'm doing is I'm pretending to be a bloke, but I'm not. And the, 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 it seems to me the real way that women get to communicate and contribute effectively is when they find whatever it is, a voice that seems right to them. And even if that is frightfully high-pitched and very trembly, if it seems right to you, it will work. It's when you're pretending mm. to be someone you're not. When it's kind of, so you become an actor, not a speaker. Rachel, you want to come in? I was going to come back to the, the physical um, place of the House of Commons. When women first um, won the right to, uh, to, to, to vote and then to stand at an election, um, the parliamentary authorities had to decide what they were going to do with these women if they were actually elected. And at that time, in, the, um, in 1918, 1919, most men in Parliament were members of private members' clubs and they could go there to write their speeches and to have dinner and to relax. But obviously women were barred from those. So the parliamentary authorities created a room called the Lady Members' Room. But perhaps, predictably, it was located down two flights of stairs about a quarter of a mile away from the debating chamber. And this is where women MPs were expected to write their speeches, do their casework, often sleep as well, because at that point there were still regular all through the night um, sittings. And so I think there has been... Certainly in those early years, I'd say early decades, this sense that women weren't really welcome in the House of Commons. Another story about Ellen Wilkinson. Um, another room in Parliament is the, the smoking room. It's still there um, today, although you can't smoke in it now. Um, and Ellen Wilkinson went up to the door of the smoking room as an MP in the mid-1920s, and the policeman on the door said, I'm sorry, ma'am, um, ladies aren't usually allowed in here. And she said, I'm not a lady, I'm a member of Parliament, and just barged in. But even when women took their seats as MPs, some of the physical space in Parliament still wasn't open to them. They weren't welcome. Sandy, I want to ask you about the experience of what it's like to walk in as a, a, not just a woman, but a a woman of colour. Because is there a kind of sheer numbers argument about some of this? You know, there were 101 female MPs came in in 1997. But before then, the numbers had been tiny, less than 5%. So how much does it add an extra level of difficulty to your life being always, you know, a minority in a room? So, I mean, the hardest thing is to actually get there. Right. And, you know, in 2005, I was probably going to be, all things equal, the first woman of South Asian origin to have got into the House of Commons. Um, But I'm afraid bigotry and prejudice still gets in the way, even though it got in the way then. I suspect it still gets in the way today. Um, Was that your selection or at the general election? So that was a general election. I mean, I managed to get through to selection. Um, and it was old Enoch Powell's seat, so it was, you know, a bit of a breakthrough. Um, but, but, then, but then, you you know, you get faced with other things, and so hence why I ended up in the House of Lords. But I, I, do, I do think, I do think that you've grown up with it. I mean, I've grown up with the colour of my skin being different to people around me. 
So I've faced it all the time. And it's like, you know, when you say, how do you deal? You just learn. And I've learned to deal with it from a very early age. So I don't take nonsense from anybody. And in the House of Lords, they all know that. Um, and at the dispatch box, I didn't need to raise my voice. I just looked over my glasses. I probably frighten the life out of most people. But I think they need to be frightened. Because we are tired Actually, we are tired of seeing the behavior that I saw yesterday. That's what irks me yes. is how many yeah. people would have been put off yesterday yeah. from thinking about yes. coming into politics. Yeah. Yeah. Mary, is yeah. it easier then, weirdly, although we know there's a particular form of misogyny directed at older women, is it easier as you get older to look authoritative and powerful as a woman? Because you have access to the headmistress. You have, yeah. there, are, there are very few models of female power. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean uh, there are some advantages in getting older, and uh, having a thicker skin is one. Um, but also... I mean, if we're thinking about women having a model of what it is to be authoritative, mm. why I leap to the headmistress and to the elderly lady is that gives us one picture of how you might command authority. Mm. It might not be one that we feel totally at ease with, um, but it's, it, you know, it is... And Brenda Hale is a very good example of that, you know, that she... Uh, she exudes everything that we were sort of slightly scared of. And it makes me feel... I mean, I look at the... I'm sorry, the, the Tory front bench, but it could be any front bench, really. And I think they're a load of boys, really. And, and I think they need... You know, their bottom spanked. And, <laughs> um, some of them I'm might like it, Mary. Happy, well, well, some of them... <laughs> not from me, sunshine. I mean, they might have other... You know, and I think that... These are these are children, or, and and in thinking that it's you know I'm saying more than what I might seem to be saying. I think that that a lot of that male rhetoric, and and I, I don't think it's entirely their fault. Is kind it's of still you know between male and privilege, and it's and it's and it's also juvenilely interactive. You know they're stuck. You know at uh, you know, uh, in the you know, in the sixth form, the remove or whatever we call it in posh schools, and at university, and it, they they behave in a way that, in my view, doesn't look grown up. I think that's a really important point because we're having again one of these discussions about women in power. But one of the things that's coming out is the idea that actually there are quite a lot of men who have trouble wielding power. And in your point is exactly right. I think the kind of overriding point of politics now is that everybody kind of wants to be the underdog. No one wants to actually be the sober statesman-like, and I use man advisedly, you know, leader who actually has to take responsibility. When I look at the, you know, the way that Boris Johnson is prosecuting an argument about the will of the people, it's about something about saying that actually judges or parliament are kind of holding me down I'm not in control and you're like yeah, well, you're the prime minister mm -hmm. you know like I, I know it's hard but that's sort of the job sir yes if that's... I may but you know what I mean yeah, it is this yeah. idea that actually men's models of, of power have kind of changed recently it's too. Billy Bunter stuff you know it's what it feels like when you listen to it it's and it's not it, it's never got past it seems to me that that sort of male clubbery with the sort of um, debating society's you know, cheap or not so cheap points. They're not, you know, I'm not going to say these guys are stupid, um, but in, in some ways they've been kept 
at a, a, a level which has suited them because they've been with all the others that are kept at that level. Well, there's, there's zero on emotional intelligence. Yes, well, I yeah, mean, they that's another just, way of They just do yes. not have an understanding of emotional intelligence, which, to be quite frank, is where the world has moved on to. Yeah. Mm. Or argument. Or you know, argument. In some sense. You know, I mean, we have moved on to actually telling people, you need to listen to somebody else's yeah. view. You need to be able to understand their view may be different to yours. It may have a different lens to yours. That's why diversity and inclusion yes, make organisations work better. But actually, you're still clubbing with the same people you clubbed with when you were small, and you've grown up with that same club of people. You have no idea hmm. how to then express no. No, a wider right. view. In, in just tiny justification of our own parliamentarians, I was once in Australia and turned on the Australian parliamentary channel, and it was even worse. Have to say. Do not imagine the yeah. grass on the other side is necessarily greener. But Rachel, I want to bring something up to you that I puzzle about a lot. So um, Caroline Lucas called for an all-female government of national unity, and I remember during the banking crisis, Harriet Harman said, "Well, Lehman Brothers wouldn't have collapsed if it were Lehman Sisters." And I remember thinking at the time, I fundamentally disagree with that because I think if we if you just flip the genders overnight and women were in control of everything, they'd act like men, right? The problem is power, not anything inherent to you know, male biology or male socialisation. Do, do you, I mean, do, what, do you agree? Well, I think it's Sandy's point about you need diversity. So boards that have women on them perform better than boards that are all male because you get a wider range of, of, of opinions. And I, I feel very much... I mean, I worked in banking and finance before I became an MP. And, you know, some of the meetings that I attended in my sort of previous roles make this parliament look positively diverse. Um, but banking and finance never claim to represent the country that it's mm -hmm. serving. Mm -hmm. And Parliament does make that mm -hmm. claim. Mm -hmm. And I think its claim on that is pretty tenuous in a lot of ways because we don't look like the country we're supposed to serve. My book's about women in Parliament. You know, great progress. Yep, 100 years ago, there were no women. When I was born, 1979, there were just 19 women in Parliament. Today, there are just over 210. That's fantastic progress, but there are still twice as many men in Parliament compared with women. Loads of the women I interviewed for the book, and my experience as well, is that you're often mistaken for the researcher or the wife or the girlfriend of the MP rather than um, actually being the MP. But yes, I think the, the, the point is not that you should replace Lehman Brothers with Lehman Sisters or an all-male cabinet with an all-women cabinet, but actually you need that diversity if you're going to both have access to the greatest talent when you're forming a team but also if you're going to bring in different experiences. So, you know, for example, I don't think it's any surprise that some of the, most of the, if not all of the great leaps forward for, for women uh, in the last 100 years have, in, certainly politically, have been taken forward by women in Parliament. So uh, the Equal Guardianship of Children, the first piece of feminist legislation taken forward by the Liberal MP Margaret Wintrium, which meant for the first time, in the case of separation or divorce, the children were no longer the property of the father. A man could have introduced that legislation, why not? But it, they didn't. It took the second woman to take a seat in Parliament to introduce that. Family allowances, championed by Eleanor Rathbone. Child benefit by Barbara Castle. Equal pay by Thelma Castellick mm -hmm. here and then Barbara Castle. Um, good childcare, Tessa Jowell and Harriet 
harm and domestic violence. You know, the list goes on and on. I don't think it's any surprise that David Lammy championed the Windrush generation when we had that scandal um, just a year or so ago. Uh, What I'm saying is that unless you're bringing people in from a range of backgrounds and experiences, you're not going to have champions for those issues, people that really understand those issues because they are their issues, things that they've experienced or people they know have experienced. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news all right i'll do it. sign up now and you'll get unlimited for 15 dollars a month in six months of paramount plus essential plan on us mintmobile.com slash switch upfront payment of 45 dollars, equivalent to 15 dollars per month unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month face lower speeds videos at 480p active mint customers by 531 24 get six months of paramount plus essential plan auto renews after six months offer ends may 31st 2024 separate paramount plus registration required terms and conditions apply if rated pg I'm going to mention something that I know will otherwise definitely come up in the question and answer session, Sandy, to you, which is Margaret Thatcher. Because any discussion of women in power takes place in the shadow of our first female prime minister with a very conflicting legacy. She said, I do not like strident females. She only appointed one woman to her cabinet, and it was her friend who was in the House of Lords. Um, She was, at the same time, an incredible pioneering figure and someone who did not align themselves with a broader feminist movement. How, how do you think she sits in the story of women in power? So I think, I think we've got to celebrate the fact that against the backdrop of where she was coming from, mm. she actually managed to get there. And I, you know, and, I, and I was watching Theresa going through some of the most painful stuff um, trying to get legislation passed in recent weeks. And Theresa and I have known each other a long time, and I know Theresa was... I mean, she is... You know, a true public servant. I suspect Margaret was a true public servant. 
against a time that she was coming from where I think Edward Heath never talked to her <laughs> ever when she became leader. So, you know, I think, I think whilst... You to, sometimes you can take things out of the time setting. Mm. And I think we need to put them back into the time setting. I mean, I must admit... I, it was 1979, and I was allowed to vote for the first time. And the only reason I voted for a woman was because she was a woman. I had no idea about the politics of it all. I just knew, here's a woman, finally. So, so I think sometimes we, we, we get mixed up with the time of it all. Did she do a lot for women? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't see a lot of women following after her. But she managed to come across off a backdrop where there were a lot of men who didn't want to get there in the first place. And that will be the same yeah. for a person of colour. Yeah. And I need to bring that in over and over again because I think we constantly forget that there are hugely talented people who will have even a tougher time mm -hmm. of trying to break through that, mm -hmm. that ceiling that we've got. And, you know, somebody asked me yesterday... No, actually, it was lunch today... Do you think you'll see a person of colour as Prime Minister in this country in your lifetime? I'm hoping I will, but I'm not so confident. Mm. But and partly, a, a huge extra burden is put on people of colour and still to some extent women. Now, I mean, I'm sure we all hope and think that we have helped the, the women and people of colour coming up, but... Somehow, the idea that, that if you are in a minority, not only do you have to do the damn job, but you also have to be extra special yeah. because you've got to nurture all the other people who were in your minority. Yes. You know, men don't... You know, nobody yeah. says to a man about a man, oh, he was really good in, you know, in, in being a mentor to all the male mm. public school boys coming up after him. You know, and uh, no, he's you know off down the pub or wherever he goes and doing his job. W women are always, and people of colour, are always expected not only to do that, but also to be caring and mentoring of the next generation. And you know, and it's something you want to do. It's not um, not for a minute saying that's a bad thing, but it, God, it adds to the workload. And and also, your failure is taken as emblematic. Right? I think this is the thing they talk about, the glass cliff, particularly about women yeah. getting appointed. I think Theresa May is the classic example of the glass cliff. When a business is failing, then you go, well, we might as well have a female chief executive. Well, yeah. Yeah. I also think um, you know, when um, it, things got really tough for Theresa May and it was clear that she was on her way out, people said, and genuinely said... Is this going to put back the case for women yes, in leadership? Right, yes. I mean, nobody is saying that. No, 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 Boris but, is really rubbish. But, but, is it going to put back the case for men in leadership? <laughs> I mean, that would never occur to someone to say that. And yet, that's people right. said it. No, that's right, and, yes. and also, people said, you know, after Theresa May, we're probably not going to be another woman. Why not? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I also hope that in my lifetime we have a woman leader of my party because we've never had that in my. Okay. Party yeah. Yet. Let's let's but, bring that up because the, mm. you, the, the achievements you mentioned are largely from the Labour side in feminist legislation but it's never quite yet extended to actually letting one be in proper charge of it so margaret beckett was acting leader w what is what is it is it the trade union background of the party is it 
you know, is, is it easier for Margaret Thatcher to become leader of the Conservatives because you say, we'll have one woman, but that doesn't mean we're going to let all women through. Is it more radical to say, actually, you know what, it's going to be 50-50 from now on? Um, no, I mean, it's an absolutely fair enough challenge. And Harriet Harman was acting leader of the Labour Party on two occasions, when Gordon Brown stood down and then when Ed Miliband um, stood down. And I think Harriet and Margaret would have made great leaders of the Labour Party. Um, I think that the Labour's use of all women's shortlists has been transformative. In 1997, there's 101 Labour women, 45% of the parliamentary Labour Party are now women. But I think it masks a deeper problem in my party, that we think, you know, we're really great, you know, 45%, we're almost uh, there. Um, and yet, when it comes to the top job, uh, in fact, when you don't have all women shortlisted of the lab- in the Labour Party, we they always elect men. Yeah. So if you looked at the directly elected mayors, Andy Burnham, Steve mm. Rotherham, mm. Sadiq, yeah. um, um, Dan Jarvis, all of, them, even all the of our directly ones elected men. mayors yeah. are men because we don't use all women shortlists. Our leader and our deputy leader are men. I-, I interviewed Margaret Beckett when I was writing my book. And um, in 1994, when John Smith died, she stood for leader and deputy leader, and she lost leader to Tony Blair and deputy leader to... John Prescott, and she said she remembers being at the conference when the leader and the deputy leader went onto the stage, and then they were joined by their wives on the stage. And she said, "Normal service in the Labour Party has been resumed, and we're 25 years later, and that is still normal service yeah. in the Labour Party." Yeah. Mary, you want to come in? Well, I mean, I think there is something paradoxical, and I think it's explicable, probably, that there is a kind of woman, and I, I suspect that I'm one, actually. Um, who manages to exploit conservative institutions. Now, uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they are making major breakthroughs, which is going to change how those institutions operate. But they do manage, they sniff out the cracks, and they move in and up there. Now, uh, you know, it's, it's not clear to me that that, that doesn't obviously entirely explain either Thatcher or May, but it, that it's, we're kidding ourselves if we think relatively left-wing, right-on institutions are necessarily those that are easiest mm. for, um, for women or minorities to, to puncture. Mm. And, I, mean, so I, I mean, I feel I've been a beneficiary of being... An odd, an odd woman, um, and you know. I, and as I say, I hope I've helped others, and I think it, things change. But there is a way that you can sometimes manipulate conservative institutions, conservative with a small C. Mm. Um, no, I get that. In a, in a way that's, that, <laughs> that that is actually surprisingly easier than the liberal apparently right on. I don't I think quite you can know int- why that is. Because I think you can in- intellectualise it. I think the thing there is you can intellectualise the, the, the discussion, mm. whereas with the sort of other end, it's still very much led by movements, and here they're led by groups of people. I think, and I think it's easier to penetrate 
groups of people than movements. I think we probably also have to talk about the trouble with exceptionalism, because I feel the same as you, which is that I do a lot of politics-related TV, and that is related to the fact there is a desperate drive to get more women on TV, but I don't have children, so I could go and do Newsnight at 10.30 at night. So the thing that has stopped women being on TV, I actually is not a a problem that I suffer from. Problem, not the children are problem. You know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, I'm sorry. I know what you mean. Yeah, Yeah. right. But... I think it's, and, and, and similarly about all, all women shortlists, you know, Diane Abbott said they risk becoming all white women shortlists. And, and, and I think that has definitely changed. But there is always a problem, isn't there, when you do crude or raw yeah. measures to improve women, yeah. actually what tends to, yeah. it flows downhill. So yeah. it's the most privileged women who, who benefit yeah. most. And all women shortlists, frankly, are still manipulated. Mm. So if you don't have an all women no. shortlist, it is a, it is an all, it is a man all pretty much always gets selected Uh, and you know most recently in the case of Vauxhall and is it Stockport with Labour women are retiring and they're not using an all-women shortlist even though that's supposed to be the policy. So, but also the way yeah. that women, all-women shortlist whereas, as I understand it, essentially uses a kind of anti-trot mechanism by the, by the Labour Party to keep out the, the far left or the hard left, as you might say. And then we get to a situation once last year. <laughs> once upon a time. And then you get to a situation last year where Tom Watson is deputy leader, obviously not in step with the Corbyn project. So what happens? Oh, we should also have a female deputy leader as well. Isn't that incredibly feminist? Well, no, it's there to dilute the power of Tom Watson and I think that is a that is a very difficult thing for women to deal with I don't know how you feel about that about do you want to support something that is ostensibly feminist that is being done for partisan screwing reasons to screw over a particular faction of the party or well, do you just take any win that you can get? In the end, I, I would have supported to have a, um, um, a woman um, deputy leader um, alongside Tom Watson, but in the end, the leadership decided they didn't um, want that. They didn't want uh, another directly elected uh, leader in the party, I think. Um, I, I think that the Labour Party has probably got a bit complacent on, on the women issue. We think that we are better than we actually are. And uh, when I spoke to Harriet Harman for the book, she said... Um, the next leadership contest, men should sit it out. Um, when I put that to other uh, MPs, they said, um, I wouldn't hold your breath, Rachel. Uh, but I think there are a huge amount of talent, female talent on the Labour benches, and I, I certainly will be supporting a woman next time we have that contest. And, and, and do you think there is now just a feeling of just such embarrassment that we have to have... I mean, the joke is always they'll have an all-women shortlist for next Labour leader and it'll still go to a bloke. Somehow they'll find a way to do it. But do you think that is now seen as the Conservatives had two women leaders and Labour haven't managed one yet? It seems so embarrassing. Well, so we're the, the Labour Party is the only party now represented in the House of Commons that has never had a woman leader. You think mm. if the DUP can do it, surely the Labour Party can. <laughs> but you also have to remember it's, I mean, it's not just about the leader. And um, there, there is still a tendency um, for women to be put or chosen for women-like jobs, but not entirely. And seeing women Minister of Defence is obviously um, marks a change. But uh, the, it seems to me, I mean, Rachel was um, you know, very winning about some of these advances for women that women parliamentarians made. You know, and if they hadn't been there, the blokes would not have done it. Yeah. You know, absolutely not. And, but there is still a sense that women some, somehow are there to deal with women's issues, yes. uh, not with you know, the economy. Yeah. And 
that change hasn't really happened. Mm. Rachel. Uh, so Herbert Morrison, who was deputy leader of the Labour Party, um, in 1945, when 21 Labour women came in, um, he advised them to stick to women's issues. issues. But there's a terrible uh, interview with Ted Heath, and you're right what he said about um, him and Margaret Thatcher. He was interviewed and he was asked whether he thought there should be more women in Parliament, and there's a sort of a long pause. And then he said, yes, I suppose so, as long as they bring a woman's perspective, otherwise there wouldn't be much point in having them there. Uh, and there has been, you know I, I, you know, I pay tribute to the women that have put issues on the agenda that have been previously neglected. Yeah. But we still, we've had a woman defence secretary, but she was only there for about two or three months, yeah. and then Boris Johnson sacked her. Yeah. We've still never had a woman chancellor Chancellor's of the Exchequer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so there is still this sort yeah. of pigeonhole. I think the, yeah. the role that has been most occupied by women is international development secretary. Yes. But it's mainly been Caring. a man as it's foreign Caring. secretary, and then the woman yeah. as international development. And uh, well, you've, we you've, still need You've worked in international development, haven't you, Sandy? I think this is something that everybody who is a a rare woman in a man's world contests is how much do you take ownership of those issues and how much do you feel kind of ghettoised by them? What's your take on that? Well, uh, look, I worked with a really, really good Secretary of State. Justine Greening was a brilliant Secretary of State for international development. She was a good transport secretary too. So I think there are some talented women that whatever job you will put them in, they will be brilliant at it. The sad thing is that they're not put in those jobs. Mm. And, and I, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm Indian by background, and Modi's put uh, Sita Raman as the, the finance minister in India. You know, she was the first woman defense minister, now she's the first woman mm. chancellor there. You know, the emerging economies are doing better than us. There's a great yeah. story about... Um, in the 1970s, there was a big strike in Grumwick, and the leader of the strikers was a, a South Asian, which was originally from Gujarat. And then someone said to, to her, do you think, actually, that women can, you know, really be managers? And she said, well, you know, Mrs. Gandhi is running a country of millions of people. I, I think probably, yes. No. Yes, they can. <laughs> um, I'm going to open up to uh, questions now. We have a series of ushers who have microphones. I can, only, I can only see the hand, but I'm pointing straight at it. Yeah, that would be great. Hi. Uh, I was just slightly uncomfortable uh, with the discussion over piercing and puncturing the male rhetoric because my feeling on that is that it's not about women changing to accommodate men, but rather educating men on conscious and unconscious bias um, through systems and processes and reminding them of those systems and processes when they breach them in the same way that... Any minority group has made progress. We would do that in the same way. That would be my first point, is the panel's feelings on how to educate men better to try and prevent some of the carnage that occurred yesterday in Parliament. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And over number three. Thank you. I'm afraid I'm going to bring up the dreaded B word. No, um, we, no, 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 absolutely not. not. We were doing so well. I knew we were doing so well. Um, so during the um, negotiation, it felt like there was a narrative around Theresa May that it was her personal negotiation skills, which meant that we weren't getting a good deal versus it actually just being an incredibly difficult situation and what the EU wanted. So do you think a man in the same position would have got treated with that narrative? Do you think there was an element of people thinking her being a woman meant that we weren't getting a good negotiation? Great. Could you pass your microphone forward? There was someone just in front of you who wanted it. So Um, so talking about misrepresentation of women at her positions, you know, there is a lot of talk that um, women are... Men are outnumbered by women. 
So I think it's all great to have this joy, joyful, light-hearted conversation here. But anyone who knows a person who, like, uh, CEO in a high position, uh, power, you know, who leads a business, leads something, I think, you know, people can confirm it's a very high, stressful position. It needs someone who is decisive, someone who is ruthless, you know, situation's tough, you have to be really unemotional to take these decisions. Um, good at handling, high, um, you know, very high-level stressful situations. So it's very different situations than having this light-hearted conversation. So don't you think that this is just a natural way that men are better at in those situations, you know, okay. because we don't send women to a combat situations, to a okay. battlefield. Well, I mean, quite, we, we do. Yeah. I mean, I mean <laughs> but anyway, but, but, that, but I take, I take your point. Like, no, and that's a good point. That's a good point. We, what we'll business, do is we'll, I'll use that as a way of talking into the biological teacher. differences she's, and whether or not we buy that you know, argument. She, Thank you. She's who she was. She was a tough woman. You know, that's what you needed because the situations are very ruthless. Okay. Thank you. Um, I mean, look, that one's really controversial because I think everyone here instinctively, I can hear it in the audience, bridling at the idea that, you know, men are tougher. Um, you know, there's something about them. They are more suited to power. And I think, Mary, this comes out in your book really strongly, right, is that there is a fear of kind of female power related to women being kind of fluid and, and changeable and more emotional, and, and men are more suited to wield it. Well, I mean, that's true, but the, the problem is that it's circular, isn't it? The power has... Power and toughness have been defined in terms of male qualities. You know, so that you think who can run faster or throw further... Uh, and usually that, that is male. If you actually change the definition of toughness and you say, who lasts longer if they're thrown into the North Atlantic <laughs> off a boat, then it's a woman. So you, you, that it, we have kind of somehow defined toughness in a way that is sort of bound to be, to put in some circumstances, at least, men out on top, because we've actually classified out those, even those physical areas. You know, try childbirth, everybody, yeah. right? You know? Um, and so, in a sense, all these kind of ideological stereotypes are somehow sort of culturally designed to be self-reinforcing. Rachel, I want to ask you a bit about this, because I think the other thing that we often get is the idea that women don't want to, that they are not as ambitious as men. And I think this is framed in a particular way by the kind of gurus of the new psychology, the kind of Jordan Petersons, that, you know, men are <laughs> genetically engineered to kind of hunt mammoths, and therefore they want to be prime minister. And you go, all right, okay, I'm not seeing it exactly. Yeah. But I have to say, I don't know about you, but I had a little prickle when um, Ruth Davidson, who is a politician I otherwise have a great deal of admiration for, said, I don't want to do this job when I've got a small baby. And, I, and at the same time, I both entirely agree that being any kind of politician with a small baby at this, at this time moment must be a pretty grim juggling act and worry about the safety of your children. Um, but, you know, is that a problem about female biology just putting a kind of big roadblock in a time when you might be otherwise getting on in your career? 
Well, I mean, Margaret Thatcher's children were older when she, um, and, and they were sent away to, to school. But, you know, she, she took Britain, I'm not in favour of it, but she took Britain into the Falklands uh, War. You know, no one could say that she wasn't tough or, you know, backed away at the sign of conflict. You know, you turn if you want to, the lady's not for turning. She was, I, I, I would also agree with Mary that why should women have to conform to, uh, you know, a, a, a man's um, definition or whatever of, of power. But you know, I just I think everyone is different. The problem is, is you know, you, you hold up Ruth Davidson. Look, there you go. Look, there are point proof. She doesn't want to be a politician and have a young baby. But just because that's her decision doesn't mean that's the decision of of all women. Um, when I was in, in 2015, I was in Ed Miliband's um, shadow cabinet. I was shadow work and pension secretary. And at the general election, I was heavily pregnant. And um, I did an interview with a newspaper and I said, they said, what would be the first thing you'd want to do if you were a Secretary of State for Work and Pensions if Ed wins the election? And I said, the first thing I'm going to do is get rid of the bedroom tax and I'm going to do it before I go on maternity leave, which was going to be in a few weeks, um, a few weeks after the election. And um, I thought that showed, you know, that I was like really prepared and I was getting on with it. I had legislation drafted. And uh, the next day there was a piece in the Daily Mail um, with a quote from a Conservative MP. And he said that if Ed Miliband became Prime Minister, he shouldn't appoint me to his cabinet because it wouldn't be possible for me to balance being a new mother and also be um, a, a senior minister in government. Now, David Cameron... Tony Blair and Gordon Brown mm-hmm. all had new babies when they were serving as Prime Minister. I don't remember anybody saying uh, they should step no, back. Right. They, should, they can't be Prime Minister. They can't possibly be Prime Minister when they've got a screaming baby and nappies mm. to change. If it makes There's you feel better, I think the Daily Mail did get very upset about Nick Clegg saying he would leave sometimes at four o'clock. But I think that's a really interesting point, actually. But, about that, but that's a good example. That's, so that's like the Ruth Davidson. Yeah. But look, also, who really believes if a different Tory leader had been elected that Ruth Davidson and would have made that decision. I mean, surely part of that decision is she just didn't want to serve, and who can blame her, under Boris Johnson's leadership? Right, and, but it's one of those things where we have this conversation about what can women do, and again, we talked about this before with Mary, about this idea that it's sort of deficiency model. But I think that the example of men in that situation is really interesting about modelling paternity leave. And I know that there are male MPs who are ferocious about um, the need to take parental leave. Duncan Hames, who's the partner of um, Joe Swinson, who was also an MP, he was the first parent to take a baby through the voting lobby, right? Because they kind of went, how can you have a baby? Like, how would we even count the baby? And it turned out they were fine. They could tell the difference between a baby and an MP. <laughs> it was really not an enormous not, not drama. Always, not, not always not, that not, easy. No, I'm not sure that... Uh, like, <laughs> he made a great speech. Yeah. But you know what I mean? In the same way, we always talk about the way that women need to project themselves as more authoritative. There's actually a kind of companion piece to that about men expanding the range of what masculinity looks like, which doesn't, I think, which gets slightly more forgotten. Sandy, I want to ask you, this is a fundamental question. Are women, do you think think there are fewer women who want to wield power than there are men? No, but I think that we, it's it's what Mary's just said, we've designed power to look like a particular way. And actually, if you gave power into the hands of women to design it the way they want to yield it, Actually, the rubbish you saw yesterday would not have happened. And just just think... Sorry, Mm. Sandy, go on. I was just going to say, the discussions would have been in a much more measured, thoughtful tone. Now, look, I was 19 when I had my first baby. I was 19. At the same time, I was stupid enough to start a business, and I was stupid enough to take on a mortgage, all at age 19, Trust me, we can do lots of different things at the same time. 
And I came into politics, I actually came into politics later on in life at age 40 because I was just fed up to my back teeth of people making decisions on my behalf without asking me. And, and, that, was, and that was the point of it all. Mm. I think often as not, people think they can't take on a new role in their lives and do it differently because we're stereotyped to think, think in a particular way. Well, look, I'm a, I'm a human disruptor. D disruptive technology arrived recently. I've been doing it forever. And, and I think really we should celebrate that in a positive way because I don't need to be an aggressive, you know, table-banging man to get my own way. I've run very successful businesses. I take hard decisions. I can do them because I think them through. And I think that's what Margaret used to do. Margaret used to think things through. She was actually very clinical in her approach. And I think we look at detail. That does seem to be a difference between stereotypically the ways we conceptualise male and female power, right? It's the, the difference between the girly swat, which I think mm. you could say Theresa May worked mm. enormously hard. Mm. Margaret Thatcher, notoriously four hours sleep a night. Brenda Hale, obviously a very incredibly forensic mind. That model of, of kind of head girl, Hermione, I'm thinking in Harry Potter, versus the kind of essay crisis David Cameron, the kind of, I'll yeah. just turn up and jazz but it. Like, what's the worst that can happen? Th that's... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> that's there in the words isn't it because we have been using the standard phrase here wielding power mm -hmm. and you say so what other things in the world of English language do you wield that's right a sword, a sword. Yeah. the only other thing that you regularly wield is a sword and that instantly shows you how uh, power is partly coded by that verb as male in, in, in traditional terms. Now, I, I think it is quite interesting that you know, we, we feel slightly embarrassed about the um, head girl, head teacher model of power, but I'm quite, I, you know, as I get older, I'm quite happy with that. You know, I don't, you know, I don't care. There's different ways of doing it. And to, you know, to be an austere old lady, I'm fine with that. But I, what I don't want to do, and I'm not going into a battle. Yeah. Mm. You know, that's, you know, and you, what you see in, in Parliament is guys who are wheel, I mean, they might as well have got a sword in their hands because that's what they're doing, you know, with, I would say, you know, their words and their willies, really. <laughs> I was waiting for that. It's to quite the image. <laughs> I was actually waiting for that word to arrive. No, but I, I mean, I do, I do think there is a fun, that, that is a fundamental difference in the way. If you look at the difference between sort of Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton in the last um, presidential contest, and he would kind of turn up with kind of hair all over the place and sort of baked beans on his sweater, and you think you can't do that as a woman. You have to be perfect. And I think about the way that Theresa May always was always, you know, she was never smart casual. That's not a phrase that appears in her vocabulary. You have to put on this kind of armour as a woman of kind of impenetrability and perfection that it is, we are much more forgiving of, of, of kind of bluster and, and, and rhetoric in men, I think. Yeah. This is, uh, just to answer the, the second uh, question from the, the lady about um, the negotiations mm. in Europe. Um, when Parliament returned um, in, in September, um, I remember the first session and Boris Johnson was giving a statement about uh, the Brexit negotiations or whatever, and Theresa May took her 
her seat, I think like the fourth row back, second in, which, where she's now placed herself. And uh, she's mainly just sort of looking down at the papers on her lap. And at one point, Boris Johnson said, you know, we put together, you know, a, you know, a top negotiating team, a much better negotiating team. She just looked up and she went, <laughs> and then looked back at her papers. It's like, she's got such contempt for the way he is doing this because she was meticulous. I don't agree. I voted against her deal three times, but I don't doubt that she wanted to deliver something and tried tried her best. And I don't think it was a lack of a lack of will and a lack of detail. And it was it was not lack of negotiation skills no, either. Mm. I mean, she has got great skills, but it was her team that was doing the negotiations most of the time, and they were all incredibly talented. But it's easy to go on television and say what you're doing. Mm. She didn't do that. She would go there and do the job and not talk about it and, and you know, blustering what we're doing and, and nobody will see what you're doing. You're just hearing it. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're just two different things. I want to bring in the final question, which was about um, unconscious bias, which I think you said, you know, do men need unconscious bias training? I think I would probably put the same thing about... I would say we all need unconscious bias training. I mean, you talked earlier, and it reminded me of this great phrase by the American feminist, Katha Pollitt's Smurfette syndrome, which is the idea there's only one female Smurf. And if you are that female Smurf, by God, you knife or any other potential female Smurf in the back. And I think, if you would accept this, that actually sometimes women can be incredibly hostile to other women because they perceive there's only one woman slot available, and if she's got it, I haven't. I don't know what you think. You, you, look, you look disagreeing, Mary. Well, I just think, yeah, I'm sure there are, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are women who are nasty to other women and there are men who are nasty to other men. But, you know, women get virulently criticised. You know, going back to the idea of they have to, they should be mentors for the rising generations. If they're not, somehow it's a terrible failing mm. in a way that men are not, men in power are not expected to do that. Now, you know, actually, we should we should all be looking out for the, you know, the next generation. But it's the idea that somehow, you know, oh, she's a woman who's nasty to other women. Well, you know, maybe I don't like the sound of that very much, and I don't like the sound of Mrs. Thatcher's behaviour. But it's not a criticism that's levelled at men. Right. So there is no male version of a cat fight. It is no. a, a way to dim, implicitly diminish conflict between women, yeah. as if men never have conflict if, with yeah. each other. God knows where they do it, but I'm sure they do. <laughs> Somewhere. Know? In the loo, I suspect. Uh, I'm going to go to the front here, so if we could get um, one to there, and, and one to there, if you mind, number two over there, to the um, woman in the red sweater. Hello. Um, hi, I'm Frances Scott from 5050 Parliament, and it's clear what we want, gender balance at Westminster. And given that it's such a testosterone fueled hormonal environment there... Um, what do you think we can do to attract women to this job? Because they're clearly essential. Uh, thanks. Thank you very much. And over there? I just wanted to go back to what you mentioned about women in appearance, particularly Theresa May having to appear immaculate mm. and saying that women has to do that in the sense that they're, they're forced to um, and that is the outcome of some unfairness rather than perhaps some unfairness is an outcome of the fact that women are doing that. So I don't know exactly what Mary was referring to when she said that she's a bit odd. But it sounds like that's something she was owning. And again, what she said about it's a disadvantage for a woman to put on a pretense 
if appearing immaculate is a pretense, then perhaps that is a weakness. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really interesting question yeah. about how much do you kind of play the game or how much do you try and challenge mm. the rules of it at the kind of fundamental level. Um, who, got the, who got the microphone? Is it working? Yes. Um, hi there. I just wanted to um, bring in it back to the online violence and the, um, the threatening behaviours that is on the rise generally in the world, as we know, and particularly what I feel is that I don't think that the MPs have any kind of HR protection officially, like every other industry and sector. So I think it was like you all, carry, you all conduct yourselves as individual officers without any accountable systems that would protect you from these kind of things. I think there's only a helpline. So what do we need to do system-wise to protect our, parliamentar- our, our female parliamentarian? That's Parliament. a great question. Thank, Thank you. you. And I'll just go up there as, as well. Thanks. So one reason women have had a challenge breaking into the C-suite due to, is due to lacking the experience of a quote-unquote typical CEO. Um, however, recently, as a result of more women being on boards, uh, this narrow focus is being debiased, you could suggest, and the typical experience is expanding to include board experience, um, smoothing the way for more potential CEO candidates and hopefully more uh, women in, in power in business. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this kind of dynamic, which is kind of a sideway in to get around uh, a biased process, and if you have any other thoughts on its relevance in other arenas of power um, and female advance, advancement to power. I think that's a really interesting question. It's, it's um, for anyone who didn't hear, it's about um, the kind of women lacking the traditional experience. But also, at every point, and this comes back to your HR point as well, I guess, about the experience of women. We know from start that if you have CVs that have names on them, if they have a quote-unquote ethnic-sounding name, those CVs are less likely to go through. We know that you know blind auditions seem to actually make things better for women because they're not being judged as women. They're being judged by the skill that they're, they're performing. Um, so maybe let's, let's start with that, which also bring in the HR thing, because actually what do we do to con- create the conditions in which women can become powerful? Um, well, I think so Francis's point about what, how we can get more women into Parliament, there's a demand and there's a supply issue. And uh, on the demand side, how do you get Conservative associations, constituency Labour parties to select women? Uh, Labour have used all women's shortlists. The Conservatives under David Cameron used the, the A-list. And those have been successful in, in getting local parties mm. to select women. And also, that creates role models. So, you know, actually, to go back to... Um, to the point about Margaret Thatcher. I was three months old when Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister. Now, I think about age eight, I knew that I was Labour. I was an early convert to the cause. But I never doubted that a woman could lead and be Prime Minister because there she was doing that. Mm. And so although, you know, I know I reacted against her and her values and, 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 and her policies, I do think that, you know, that, that she was in some ways... Oh, she wasn't a role model, but she did certainly create that sort of sense that that might be possible. And, and I think that's really important. My, my daughter is six years old. And when Theresa May stood down as, as Prime Minister, and you know, we heard a bit of it on the Today programme in the morning, about, and uh, she said, so is it not going to be a woman as Prime Minister? I was like, 
no, no. That, and that's not normal, Anna. <laughs> uh, I didn't say that. But, you know, so she, her experience was, oh, well, of course a woman is Prime Minister, because, well, she just is. And that was my experience growing up um, as well. So I think that now you've got, you know, a third of, of MPs are, are women, there are just a lot more. You can't be what you can't see. And now you can see an awful lot of women in Parliament. And so it's, I think it makes it easier to aspire to, to be... Now, also the political parties have all had... You know, there's a Labour Women's Network, the Joe Cox Leadership Programme, um, uh, Women to Win in the Conservative Party. Those are really important for the, the mentoring opportunities and, and, and giving women the confidence to put themselves forward. Uh, again, when I spoke to, to, to Theresa May about some of this, she said that the reason she set up Women to Win in the Conservative Party was that um, women needed to be persuaded to stand. And she said, well, you know, men, they just all think they're the best, don't they? Uh, I thought it was quite revealing. This is the day after Boris Johnson had written his Telegraph piece about how Muslim women look like, um, you know, pillar boxes. So I can't imagine who she was talking about when she was uh, making that point. So I, I think, you know, there is more that is needed to get... Can I just say something about the abuse yeah. um, issues? So in Parliament, I know that there have been attacks on Parliament, but I feel very safe in Parliament. You know, we are... It is very secure. There are a lot of police. There are a lot of guns. Maybe that shouldn't make us feel safe. But, you know, there are a lot of armed police. Uh, it's very outside. difficult to get mm. into the building. You know, that, that, quite rightly in our constituencies, it's, it's not like that. You know, the, the police in my community, in Leeds, you know, they offer to come to the surgeries, to the events. But I don't want to create a wall between myself and my constituents. I don't think that's the, the lesson that we should learn from the murder of, of Joe Cox. But you can feel quite vulnerable. You know, Jess Phillips's office today had to be closed because you had people trying to get in and, and throwing uh, things at, 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 the, at the window. If you haven't seen the tweets today from Yvette Cooper's daughter, Ellie, they are incredibly powerful. And uh, if you can read them without shedding a tear, then you are a stronger person than, than I am because that was the experience of a daughter saying how she felt about her mother being an MP at the moment. Mm. And if we want more women to go into politics, and if we want more good people, not just women, if we want more good people to go into politics, the language and the violence has to change because you're going to put off a generation of people from going into politics if this is part of the job description. Before I come to you, Mary, I just want to bring Sandy in because you've got business background. And we, we talk about the abuse and intimidation. Another issue systemically that holds women back is sexual harassment in, in the workplace. And there was a review into that in Parliament. From your experience in business, how does that map onto the HR arrangements in, in Parliament? Like, how comparable are they? <laughs> does it say it all? <laughs> I mean, because this is one of the issues, right? I mean, it's only no... recently that yeah. they've actually acknowledged that we need some sort of complaint mechanism. Yeah. And to be quite frank, I think we have also been a little slow in demanding it. And I think, I think we should sometimes just take the flack when it hits and just be that person who's going to say it. Um, I mean, Parliament is archaic. We, we put the laws out for everybody else. But to be quite frank, Parliament is the worst for duty of care for the people in Parliament, whether you're a member of Parliament or the people who work there. We are actually the worst for duty of care. Mm. And I think 
I think we should take a really good, long, hard look at ourselves on that one. Mm. Uh, Mary, I want to ask you about this, this question of femininity, because one of my favourite things to read you on is your personal relationship with the kind of trappings of womanhood. So you wrote a great piece, I think, in the Daily Mail about your love of shoes, right? Loved it. Some, Mary's got an incredible shoe collection, uh, more amazing trainers than you, you could shake a stick at. But you also did a BBC programme about having grey hair and how rare that is for women in public life. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I'm very lucky because I work in a university where there's always been a certain tolerance of stylistic eccentricity, <laughs> to put it. <laughs> I don't have an HR department, by the way, that takes any notice of whether I'm being given death threats, but um, uh, you know, I, absolutely none. So I think, you know, I think parliamentarians have a much worse time than me, but I think there's quite a lot of pockets of um, employment yeah. in this country where uh, women's safety is just brushed, on, I mean, it's brushed under the carpet. But... Uh, um, Margaret Atwood said recently, you know, it was terrible to be a woman in politics because you not only had to have a position, you also had to have a hairstyle. And, you know, that says it all, really. And I, I think there's... I, mean, I think it's a very complex one. But, again, it's, there is a contrast between um, male and female styles in public life. And as I say, I've been very lucky that, that you, you, get, you get a little bit of licence if you're an academic because you're sort of supposed to be, you're allowed to be a little bit eccentric. But what I always feel is that it's not so much that there is a pressure to think how you look because there is not a person in the world who doesn't think how you look. The fact that I don't colour my hair is not because I've somehow forgotten to. It's that I have decided not to. Um, and you know, so, you know, apart from a very few psychopaths, everybody is going out into the world with a series of choices about how to present themselves. So this is not absence of mind. This is what I've decided to look like. Um, I don't know whether that cheers you up or the other way around, but that's true. Now, I think the problem about women in political life in particular is that de facto their choices are narrowed. That it's much, much harder to choose to look like me if you're in Parliament. And you know, that's part of the sort of breaking the boundaries of what, what power seems to be and what seems to be acceptable. Because, I mean, I think... No, I can, I can feel sort of optimistic about all the things that you've talked about, about mentoring and all women's shortlists and A-lists and getting more women into, you know, to contest seats and to win. But ultimately, it's back partly to what you were talking about in terms of Parliament being designed for men. It's designed architecturally for men. It's designed in its lavatory provisions for men. And it's designed in its whole ideology for men. Now, when somebody over there talked about, worried, I think, rightly, about me talking about puncturing or piercing the male rhetoric, and I think, I do think that's important because I think what we've got to do is not just change the women so that they're bolder and kind of, you know, they're not put off by this, but change what the political and power structures look like. And that partly means 
changing how we hear men talking authoritatively, mm. uh, how we you know, think practically about um, the arrangements, what, and also what happens in our heads. I mean, the, the example kind of I often use, and I, I bet it would work now, is that if you shut your eyes and you think of a prime minister and then you honestly say what you, what you saw, most of you will have seen a man in a suit, even though we've just had a female prime minister. If I say to myself, what does a female professor look like, and I shut my eyes, I see a kind of Einstein character with a beard and a white coat, even though I am a female professor. So there's a huge amount of ideological baggage, which is not simply about helping the girls get in, but changing what it is that they're going to get into. I think if I could do one thing, actually this isn't the one thing I would do to change the world, but um, it's a very trivial thing, but banning the Navy suit (laughs) would change the way that we think and talk about politics overnight because there is a a neutral uniform for men in politics and it is a Navy suit. And microphones are designed to go in the suit pocket and clip on the lapel. You know, it is designed that it doesn't show that you're sweating unless you're Tony Blair at that conference speech. But... You know, it is, yes. let's be honest with you, quite flattering on gentlemen with a carrying a little en bon point. Um, but it is, it is kind of, it is basically, it just says, it just, I'm a person, I'm a person. I'm not making any other statements about myself apart from authority, whereas women just do not have that choice. And it's interesting to see how different powerful women have coped with it. I'm a big fan of the Angela Merkel power suit in every colour under the sun, <laughs> yes. right? But the pantsuit becomes a thing in itself. It isn't just a, a suit. And if we, you know, it, I think it's also very unfair, by the way, that men have to wear a tie in the chamber when it's... No, don't now. Do they not? No, not anymore. Oh, this, it's this very is a, sloppy now. But this, I thought, was a... <laughs> you know, I'd make the buggers wear a tie. <laughs> you know, actually, <laughs> so they've got so many other advantages. Make the blasted men wear That's, ties. Right, the, the punishment tie, OK. Yeah. But can I... Can I but yeah, sorry, sorry, Sandy. I was just going to say, it was to the... Don't um, up, up there, yeah. There, right? When I was a minister for energy at DEG, I used to inevitably go to meetings where everybody sitting in front of me were men. And they were all white. They were of a particular age. They all sounded pretty much the same. They reasonably looked pretty much the same. (laughs) And I took a decision that I had it in my power to try and change this. So I think as parliamentarians, we can actually do quite a lot to the, I don't know where he is now, but to the chap up there about CEO mentality. So you can actually start to break the cycles. I mean, I sat at Powerful Women. I demanded CEOs to show me where women were in the energy sector. And it started to change. It is starting to change. I think you can. I think you've just got to say... 20 th- 23, 24 men sitting, not acceptable. Yeah. Don't want to hear your voices. They're all sounding the same. I need, I, need, I need change, so I will make that change. And I think that's part of, you know, we don't need HR to tell us that because we know it. Yeah. Rachel, you wanted to come in. I was just going to say something about um, you know, the, the difficult choices women have to make about what to wear. So you talk about the Navy suit today. When Nancy Astor first took her seat um, in the House of Commons in, in 1919, the first woman to take her seat, um, all the men wore full morning suits to the House of Commons. 
Uh, and obviously that choice wasn't available to her, so she had to decide how women were going to dress in Parliament, and she decided to create what she talked about as a uniform for women MPs, which was a, a black skirt and jacket, a white blouse, um, a tricorn hat and a gardenia in her buttonhole. And um, she tried to get the other women in Parliament to dress similarly. And she was uh, very disappointed when Ellen Wilkinson turned up wearing a, an emerald green dress. And uh, she tried to persuade her to dress more soberly, but to no avail. But that happened in 1997 too, right? Because Harriet Harman writes in her memoir about being folleted. So Barbara Follett, another MP, said everybody needs to wear a bright, jewel-toned jacket. And then that became a kind of quasi-uniform. A bit Angela Merkel. A bit Angela Merkel. I think we've got some very... I'm going to do very, very super-fast questions. So keep your questions incredibly short. We'll go over there. Could we have seen the greatest car crash yesterday in Parliament of my lifetime? We have got a car crash nationally Mm -hmm. in our lifetime. We are talking about power. We are talking about people who are in a... a fighting for standards and goodness knows what else. I'd love the panel to say, how would they tackle the rage that is in the country on one side and the rage that's in the country on the other... What are you going to do? This is what real power is about, is when you have ideas in your head as to how to put it right. Okay, I'm going to save that one for last, because I think it's a good note to end on. So can I just take one from here? Yeah, sure. Um, I agree with Mary that not all women in public life have to be feminists. I wish they were. But I'm wondering, I'm conscious that uh, Priti Patel was originally supposed to sit on this panel, uh, and it's otherwise occupied uh, in the car crash, um, supporting the car crash. Theresa May wears the Fawcett Society T-shirt. This is what feminist looks like. But let's talk to the women of Yarlswood and the women who get turned away from refuges. Is there a responsibility as well as rhetoric for actual action? Okay, I'm going to. We got a question over there because I've, I've neglected this side of the hall. Sorry. So um, earlier you mentioned that there's a whole problem with emotion and how that's perceived in politics, and that's gone back historically quite a long way. So, for example, in Roman Greece, it's a bit of a thing that men had quite small genitalia because that was what was seen as an act of self-restraint, and that in turn was seen as cultured, and that's carried through history since. But my question is, why, why can't that be changed? Okay, why can't that be changed? Thank you. Yeah, um, and I just had one more. Did you get, have you got a microphone? Um, the very word power implies something to be fought for. Um, how could we as a society uh, look at this in a non-combative way uh, so as if to, not to be seen as uh, lose, a way of not losing something? Um, and in your experience, you know, what are men scared of? Spiders, in the case of my husband. Terrified of spiders. But I don't think that's germane to the discussion. Um, I think all of these questions really are kind of circling around the same thing, which is we've identified a, a suite of problems, um, which are quite large, and, 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 and the way that those things have changed over time. So I'm going to end by really asking you, if you kind of get one wish to change something, what's the thing that we can change? How, how do we make things easier for women who want to wield power? You use that word wield again. I know, I, I know. You see? Women who want to... What's the... What's a, uh, women who want to cook power? I mean... <laughs> how can we... What can we reclaim at this to point? Share, sharing. Share power. Sharing power. We want Thank to share in it, don't we? Okay. And that's, that seems the, the most important thing. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to have... You know, mine's pie in the sky. But I think, as you just brilliantly exemplified, Helen, um, I, I, I want to have the language police out there. Mm. And I want to point up 
to people uh, repeatedly in a friendly way um, how the language they use about power and politics is constantly putting women into the supportive backseat, apart from some very exceptional women who can sort of almost pretend to be men. Um, wield power is one example. And the other classic one is ambitious, the word, the adjective ambitious, which if you say that about a man, it's a great compliment. You know, you know young Boris or young Alexander, whatever, is really, you know, ambitious to get on. You know, that's a great thing. You say it about a woman and the message is steer clear of her. Yeah, and bossy is only ever used of women. And bossy is... A, and if, you know, if this is kind of going back to 1960s consciousness raising. But it wasn't a bad idea in the 1960s, and it wouldn't be a bad idea now, just to think harder about how we speak and how we think. And I think that would make a huge amount of difference. Sandy? So I think, just following on from what you've just said, Mary, our reaction to how people behave actually can really start to change the dynamics of the debate. If I don't rise to somebody's bullyish behavior, to be quite frank, they've got nowhere to go. And I think we, have, we don't have to be reactive in the same way as the person in front of us is behaving. I remember once my children, when they were small, they, I was in a supermarket and um, my daughter was having a tantrum. She's lying down having a tantrum. I gave her two choices. I said, I can either come and lie down with you, and you can deal with it that way, or I can just walk off, and you've got to decide whether you want to get up and follow me. And she decided, better get up and follow, because my mother will do the other as well. <laughs> so I think, really, it's about our responses to what we see. And to be quite frank... We've, we've just inherited a time, I think, in political history where people think they've got to behave this way to be heard. And I'm saying, stop it yourself by not reacting. And that's why I was a little bit concerned yesterday mm. about the way women were reacting in the chamber. And I wanted that to be school momish. I wanted it to be you, silly boy. Yes. A bit of humiliation. You know, delivered. Really, you need to take a grip of yourself. And I think we've got to change it if we want it changed. Mm. Rachel. I'm, I'm not sure about being critical of the women who were angry no, no. Um, no, no. Y I, yesterday I because there was a huge amount of yes. provocation mm. from the Prime Minister mm. and from other um, MPs yesterday in, in the chamber. I would say, though, that um, I think the first thing lies in all of us. How do we all conduct ourselves in public and political mm. debate? whether that is at uh, your local party meeting or whether it's what you post online or it's about who you encourage to stand and put themselves forward. What are we doing to try and get better people in politics, in top 
jobs in industry, are we encouraging others around us to, to, to aim for those things and, and to tell people that they are good enough, they can uh, do that, but also about the way we conduct our political debate. And it has become, you know, and, and with it, we're taking that leadership from, I think, some people in politics, that it is okay to, to, to insult, um, to call people, you know, traitors or, 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 or betrayers uh, and, and that sort of language. So we all have a responsibility, I think, we all have a responsibility in that. But, but also, you know, Boris Johnson yesterday tried to, 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 to channel um, Joe Cox and say what Joe Cox would want would be for us to get on and deliver Brexit. I, I think let's really channel what Joe said, which is that we have more in common than that which divides us. And that is what is so lacking in politics today, that there's no sense of trying to find the common good or the national interest to try and bring people together. And I think that is what is desperately needed in politics. I'm not saying it's easy. Of course, there are huge divisions about how to take our country forward, particularly on the issue of Brexit. But I think there's a better way and a way that tries to channel that instinct of trying to find the common good that will lead to better policy de um, decisions, but also a more united country, less fractious country. Thank you. Well, look, it's been a fantastic discussion. And I have to say, I can highly recommend both Mary's book, which will tell you why no one listened to Penelope and no one listened to Miss Triggs either, um, and also Rachel's book, which takes in Red Ellen and uh, Nancy Astor and a host of other incredible women from Westminster ever since women got into Parliament. They will both be signing their books afterwards. But for the moment, please give a big round of applause to my three panellists. Yeah.